Hi, and welcome to the Tales from the Trail podcast by Matchplay. In this episode, I welcome physical therapist Dr. Seth Blee, owner of Blee Elite Sports Therapy in Chantilly, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. Dr. Blee has worked with professional athletes in many sports, including baseball, football, soccer, hockey, basketball, lacrosse, and mixed martial arts. He served as the head team physical therapist for the Washington Nationals from 2016 to 2023 and for the Washington Spirit of the National Women's Soccer League from 2020 to 2022. He has been seen in ESPN's Project 11 as he was the PT for 2020 NFL Comeback Player of the Year, Alex Smith. We discussed some methods to prevent injuries, how to deal with injuries, and what it takes mentally to persevere through rehabilitation. Thank you for sharing and subscribing to the podcast and helping it grow. Please rate and review the podcast where you listen. Keep sending questions and comments. I enjoy the feedback and always get your questions answered by my guests. Don't forget to check out Match Play on social media as well. Uh, So good morning. Um, I'm Scott Cooper and I got uh, Seth Blee here this morning. Um, He is a doctor of physical therapy. Um, who has his own practice out in Northern Virginia in the Chantilly area, but has worked with athletes far and wide um, in, in uh, from the highest levels down to you just tell me you have a college kid coming in and I'm sure uh, even younger than that. So um, we'll get into that in a minute, but you were also a college athlete. So let's talk about how, you know your road to through recruitment and your youth sports experience and, and how you came to, you know, become a, a college wrestler, I believe it was. And uh, let's talk about that for a little bit. All right. Sounds good. Well, good morning, Scott. And thanks for reaching out and for having morning. me on the show or to, to talking to you. Um, yeah. I'll, you asked me about my recruiting. That was a long time ago. So it, it'll be a little bit uh, sketchy as far as my memory goes, but I appreciate you, you asking. Um, yeah, uh, was always into sports growing up. Um, tried a, a handful of different sports, but wrestling was always my what I happened to be the best at. Um, and wrestled through high school and knew that that was something that I wanted to pursue in college. And I remember that this is going to show my age, but I remember we used to take uh, make video cassettes and send them to coaches, and and we'd reach out to coaches that way pre-internet days um, and remember going out to a handful of recruiting trips and and just communicating with coaches throughout my senior year and and uh, wound up taking, uh, like I said, a, a handful of trips and enjoyed my trip up to Boston College definitely the most. And it was the school that I was most interested in. So that's where I wound up going for my undergrad. And so what was your like, college athletic experience like as far as um you know bonding with team and are you still in touch with a lot of your teammates and that sort of thing yeah um the nice thing about being a college athlete is when you get to school you already have a friend so that's that's definitely something that i remember the most is getting on campus freshman year and finding the other guys that i knew were recruited and hooking up with them and day one, having somebody to go eat with and and having somebody to hang out with and go through workouts with. So that was definitely, I think one of the the highlights of 
being a college athlete. And I, I do still keep in touch with a good number of my my teammates, even to this day, who are spread out all throughout the country. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. I suffered through weight, cuts, I'm sure, together. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, to modernize it a little bit, you, uh, you have uh, one kid who just got out of college as an athlete and one who is in college right now. So, you know, maybe talk about how much the recruiting process changed. Um, we focused mostly on soccer here, but I'd be curious to hear about um, the sports that your kids played and um, or play and, um, you know, what that recruiting process was like. Sure. Yeah, I can definitely speak to my own experience and my kids' experience, but also as a physical therapist, I treat high school athletes in a lot of different sports. So I, I currently have kids mm -hmm. that are being recruited and going to showcases and playing on travel teams and, and going throughout the country in in baseball, softball, football, soccer, lacrosse, um, basketball. So definitely see it from a lot of different perspectives. And I don't think it's all that different for different sports. So I think some of these things I think are, are pretty universal and you can apply them to all. My kids played a bunch of sports growing up. My son, uh, his favorite sport and what he did the best at was baseball. And my daughter was a softball player. and as much as I thought they wouldn't be year-round athletes of one sport, they both were from a, a pretty young age. Uh, fortunately, they didn't just do those sports. So they, they, were, they played multiple sports throughout their childhood. Uh, yeah, we went through the recruiting process. We went through the, the showcases, the travel ball, the traveling all over the place and spending who knows how much money on hotels and, and going throughout the country to uh, just get the experience and play with play against higher level competition. Um, I, I know they both reached out to a lot of coaches early on in their recruiting process. And I think my son, when he was, I think his junior year, decided as he was going to some showcases that he didn't think it was really for him. And he actually opted out of um, going through the whole recruiting process and, and playing in school and wound up playing club, which was an awesome experience for him. So I think that's something that's overlooked by a lot of athletes. But for him, it was perfect. He got to go to school and, and play baseball, which he loves doing, and, and not have quite the pressure that you have with being on a varsity team. So that was his experience. Um, my daughter was a softball player, is a softball player. She plays at Shenandoah now and went through the, the process of reaching out to coaches and going to camps and you know trying to make contacts and be seen um, and, you know, at the same time, realizing it's probably going to be playing a, a division three school. So really wanted to pick the school that was right and not the team. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things that I try to encourage kids to do, because I see kids that pick a random school, who knows where that is just a school that they could play their sport at. And they know absolutely nothing about the school or doesn't even have what they think they want to study. So it, it was we were really fortunate for her that she was able to find a school that she could play at and that was really perfect for her field of study that she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, uh, um, it's, it's awesome that your kids had kind of the, the wherewithal and I'm sure that you and your, and, and their mom had something to do with that, but like just the, 
the ability to be honest with yourself and, you know, say, all right, this is what is going to work best for me. Um, and, and they found a way to keep playing and, and, you know, the sport that they loved. So um, I think that, uh, I don't know what your experience is with the athletes that you get in your practice, but some of them probably need a healthy dose of that, that they, they maybe think that they're at a higher level than, than maybe they, they should be thinking. Um, yeah. So I, I get that a lot on the podcast, like just some healthy self-assessment and, and listening to people who have been doing it a long time. Yeah, so. I, I definitely see a wide range of it. I, I see everything from the kid who's really got their, their head on right and their priorities right and, and wants to go to a good school and wants to be able to play their sport too. And, and if they can use that sport to help direct them to the right school for them, then that's great. And then I see other kids that say, I don't care where I go or what I have to study. I want to go play my sport. And, you know, we, we've probably all seen plenty of cases where they get to the school and all of a sudden they don't either like the coach or they're not getting playing time or it's not what they thought it was going to be. And now they're in the middle of nowhere at a school that they wouldn't have gone to ordinarily and wondering what to do. Right. Yeah, I mean it's uh it's pretty it's more common than you think I imagine or than people think uh, we we've seen. Um so let's talk about your practice. Um you uh for those of you just like in a few sentences tell people what physical therapy is and um what it's where you you know where you come in in the continuum of care sure. so to speak. Um, yeah, so I'm a physical therapist. I've been working in orthopedics, uh, primarily in sports medicine, for 25 years now. My practice now, I'm the, uh, I have been in the the bigger organization, so I ran as many as 18 outpatient clinics and and left that earlier this year and have just my own practice, which is literally just me, which is great because I get to do really whatever I need to do with my athletes, um, and I see. A wide range, everything from rehabbing people from injuries. So if somebody gets hurt playing their sport, they come and see me and, and we try to do whatever we can to get them back on the field. Uh, I do a lot of post-surgical rehab. So, you know, for your soccer players, you probably think about your ACLs, your Achilles, your hamstrings, things like that. So I see a lot of people rehabbing from surgeries. And then I see a good number. I'm, I'm also a strength and conditioning coach. So I see a good number that just want to come in and see if they're doing the right things and learn how to use their bodies better. And as a PT, as opposed to going to, you know, some other practitioners, I'm able to really evaluate how they use their body from a lot of different perspectives and then give them things that they need to do to work on their mobility and their strength and their coordination and, and power and try to really maximize how effectively they use their bodies. And that's, that's the fun thing about being in the practice that I'm in now is it can kind of mesh physical therapy and manual therapy and, and hands-on work to strength and conditioning and, and workout programming and a lot of different things all geared towards just trying to get the most out of their bodies. Right. Um, yeah. In part two, we'll definitely uh, come out and uh, show people what you, what your uh, clinic looks like and um, maybe even uh, you know, show them, show them a thing or two about what goes on there. Um, so I noticed in your, in your bio that you're, you're heavy in the functional manual therapy 
um, proprioceptive neurofacilitation and that sort of thing. So uh, it's huge in sport, right? So um, talk about how you deploy that and, um, you know, when you do and, and sure. the results. Yeah, of so that. functional manual therapy is, is kind of the framework of an institute that I am certified through and I'm an instructor with. It's called the Institute of Physical Art. And probably the easiest way to describe what we do is is based on three different areas that we we assess with patients. Um, we assess mechanical issues that they have, so mobility issues. You know, people that get get tight and and need to have soft tissue work and joint work done, things to get their bodies moving better. And I do things like like manual therapy, like dry needling and cupping, and and a lot of the things that are pretty popular in the sports medicine world to help them just move better. Then we do a lot of retraining to get them to mm-hmm. use their bodies more efficiently. So looking at how they fire their their bodies and how they use certain muscles at certain times, do they have the right movement patterns and really retraining those? And, and that's where PNF comes in. PNF is really, uh, a lot of people think about it as just PNF stretching and, and things like that, but it's really um, a manual therapy approach that we use our hands and our cueing for patients to get the best response out of their bodies as we can. So it might be how I'm putting my hands on them, how I'm resisting them and trying to facilitate different muscle contractions. Um, so that that's a big component. And then we build into the strength and um, working on strengthening and, and putting it all together so they use their body more efficiently. And, and then lastly, is what we call motor control is really how they use their bodies, how they put it all together, how they move. That gets into a lot of movement specifics based on their their individual sport. So as a functional manual therapist, I, I look at all of those components. Do they move well? Do they use the right muscles at the right time? Do they have adequate strength and endurance and control of their body? And then what happens when they get up and move? You know, Do they translate that to being on the field or in the gym? Right. So it's basically creating efficiencies and, um, does it, does it, uh, have a role in injury prevention Uh, as well? Yeah. You nailed it when you said it, it's about creating efficiency. That's, that's a hundred percent what it is. And the way that I always think about it is if you move efficiently, not only do you get more out of your body and you should perform better, but you're also less likely to sustain injuries. Um, now, there's some injuries that are unavoidable. You think about your contact injury, somebody tackling somebody and you know they hit their knee the wrong way, things like that will happen. But in general, the more efficiently you move your body, the less susceptible you are to injury, especially those overuse injuries that we see with with certain sports and soccer would definitely be one of those. Yeah. So, yeah. So let's kind of like go to uh, you know a day in the life, a day, a season in the life of you know a, a junior in high school, um, training four days a week, a match, maybe even two, um, three if they're in a showcase in, or tournament environment. Um, so basically, seven bouts uh, a week. Um, what can they do to prevent injury, um, to you know, be more efficient and, and that sort of thing, and then recovery as well. Um, so maybe just kind of walk through the different phases that they need to address and 
you know, on top of it, they're high school students. So, you know, they've got to go to class. So when can they get in the extra work? And, oh, I mean, it's up to them when, but efficiently, what can they do to, to help yeah, themselves out? That's there? a great question. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I, I think it, it probably starts yeah. with your off season and your, your preparation. And that's, that's a combination of really assessing the body to make sure that you have all those things that I was talking about, that you have good mobility, you have good strength and, and coordination and, and kind of connection of using your body properly. Because if you go into a season and you don't have any of those bad things are going to happen, right? So I think the preparation for going into a season and making sure that you're setting the body up for success is key. Uh, a lot of people will spend some time in in the gym and doing their strength work in the off season which is so important and we know there's there's a lot of research that supports that and one of the best things you can do is is just to get stronger you know there's there's a common saying strong things don't break um, they don't break as easily they can still break um, but the off season using your body properly getting getting the strength and the control and the mobility is important and then really looking at how they're able to maintain those throughout the season and I've seen this with a lot of athletes that you start practicing four nights a week and you have your homework and you have games. All of a sudden, all that great work that you did in the off season, there's there's the potential to lose a lot of it if you don't maintain that. So you need to maintain your strength work and, and make sure you're still working out during the season um, so to make sure that you are setting yourself up for success, you know, so that things don't start to break down as easily. So I think factoring that in. Um, and maybe it's you do one less day of skill work or one less one less day of of running or of, of a given activity so that you can continue to build strength. And I think that's something that a lot of kids struggle with because it's it's all about I, I just need to work on my skill and, and work on, you know, my touches or whatever sport they're doing. How do they continue to excel at that sport? But we know that if you use your body well, you're going to be better with that. And if you train athleticism and do things like that in the gym you're going to be better at your at your sport. So really trying to work with them to figure out how they can incorporate that into their normal week, even throughout the season. Um, and one thing that you touched on in the question too, that I find myself counseling kids about almost more than anything is downtime and realizing your body needs a break. And And some of the kids that are playing on multiple teams and they're traveling and they've got practices every day, I often ask them, what's your off day? You know, when do you take some time off? When, when do you just go be a kid? Or when do you get your homework done? Um, and that's, that's a huge component of it. So that's okay. the, the downtime, the sleeping, nutrition, all of those things that factor in are, I think, are critical things that they need to be thinking about, which are just as important, if not more so, than all the training that they're doing on the field. Right. Um, you also think I was thinking about um, uh, females. They are recruited way earlier, um, especially in soccer. I don't. I, I'm sure it's the same way in other sports. Um, you know, they're starting to get looked at and inquired about in middle school sometimes because they obviously mature earlier. And then I was starting to, you know, I was wondering. Is, is there, there used to be this old way of thinking that, you know, strength training shouldn't be done in, you know, at a, at a certain age necessarily. So, you know, is there a time that's too young? 
to start thinking about those things or um, are there ways to, to train even when you're, yeah, I, I think uh, or something like that. There's not a too young. There's, there's yeah. a smart way to do it for each age group. You know, you don't need to get a 12 year old under a heavy barbell doing, doing back squats, but they can be doing plenty of, of body weight um, type movements or, or light band resistance. And, and for them, it's really even more so than the, the, the weight training, it's really about the movement training, you know, to make sure that they use their bodies well. And it, it's a tough time, especially for girls as they're developing, because sometimes they, they kind of are growing into their bodies and may not know how to use their bodies as well at that age when they are getting recruited. Fortunately for boys, they probably get recruited a little bit later. Um, so I think making sure that they move their bodies efficiently. And once they get, you know, for example, once they can can lunge and squat and, and hinge and do some of those motions, then it's okay to start adding some light weight to it. So I don't think there's, as long as you're playing sports, there's not a time that's too young to start thinking about training. Um, that being said, right. you can go completely overboard. You know, I've, I've seen right. some eight and 10 year olds that are working with their personal strength coaches multiple times a week. And, and I think that can get a bit carried away. Um, but I think as long as you're, you're, playing a sport you should be training your body and how to move better and so i think that that's a big component of it i will say different sports i think are going different ways with the recruiting process which is great and i know um baseball and softball actually just changed over the last couple of years that they can't get recruited until i forget what the date is but it's junior year of high school um which is great it used to be you'd hear these seventh graders committing to play in, in college which who knows if they even want to play that sport six years from now. So um, fortunately that has moved a little bit later right. and I'm optimistic that hopefully some other sports will follow that because the pressure it puts on these kids, you know, the pressure yeah. it puts on them in yeah, middle school being a, is ridiculous. Forget about all the, the emotional and mental struggles they're having. Now you have a, an eighth grader who has to worry about committing to a college. It's, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean it's it's no wonder anxiety is an issue. Um, <laughs> so let's talk about getting injured. Um, you know, inevitably you're going to get injured if you're playing a sport, especially a contact sport. Um, so we've talked a little bit about preparing and you know doing all that you can to prevent an injury, um, but once you're in the you know, the injury pipeline, so to speak, um, it just came off the top of my head. I don't even know if that's a thing, but, um, you know, you've been, a, you've seen a doctor and then, you know, they come to you for, to, to get better, to get, to return to sport and talk about like, and I know that you've worked with really high end athletes. So I don't want to hear some stories about that, but you know, what does an athlete need to do? Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about like, you're going to set boundaries for them and then talk about, you know, kind of pushing the boundaries a little too much and going overboard and what the consequences of that are. And, you know, so like you did the last question, I, I know this is a lengthy one, just to kind of unpack that whole process. And, <laughs> sure. and uh, the yeah, more you questions. talk, the better. Than um, me, so, uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot it. of different things that you want to think about when they come in uh -huh. and actually get to a PT and, and get to be evaluated for me. 
uh, for from me. And the way that I look at it is, is they had an injury that brings them into my office. So I need to address that. And that's kind of the acute, um, obvious thing that needs to be addressed. Somebody came in and they have a hamstring strain or they, they rolled an ankle or they, they're having back pain, whatever it is that took them off the field and brought them in to see me. So I need to evaluate that and figure out what it is and what we do about that specific injury to get them out of pain, to teach them things that they might need to do to, to make sure that this is being managed completely and that it doesn't come back. Uh, but then also the bigger part for me is really looking at the why behind it. And, you know, if you, you have back pain from running and playing, I want to see, is there something going on in your mechanics and how you're moving and how you're using your body that's caused this to happen? Because if all I do is, is get you out of acute pain, but I don't address why you're having this pain in the first place, you're going to be right back here. You know, you take that, that, uh, female soccer player, for example, that's got hip flexor issues or, or low back pain when they run and when they strike and that goes on over and over. They start to have some inflammation. They have pain. So they're out, they come and see me and maybe there's a, a postural component to that, or there's, there's some soft tissue restrictions or they, there's some core weakness. There's different parts of their body that might not be functioning as efficiently as it should which cause them to overuse those hip flexors. And that's something that I see almost every day. So it's it's really addressing that acute issue, but also addressing components that may have factored into creating that. And I think sometimes I, I have conversations with athletes and say, I know, I know it stinks that you're out right now. And I, I hate to be the bad guy and say, you can't play these next couple of weeks, but you really have to look big picture. And, and it's hard to say that to a, 12, 13, 18 year old, um, but really think about the fact that we're taking this time now to not only right. hopefully get you out of pain, but to make you better so that this doesn't come back. Because if all we do is patch this up, get you out on the field, it doesn't really do you any good if a month later we have to have the same conversation. So for me, it's really looking at, at the total body and figuring out how do we get them healthy but then back even stronger than they were before. And it's eye-opening for a lot of people that uh, think that they might have been using their bodies well and been really strong and had no issues. And then we start to put them t through some tests and they say, boy, I, I didn't know that was so hard for me. Why can't I do this? And we take the step back and say, well, let's, let now, let's now take the time to work on this, get you even better at this. So when you get out on the field, your body's just working better and we don't have to worry as much about re-injuring this specific issue that you came with. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about the, I mean, you've worked with the national Washington nationals. Um, you've worked with a, you know, on your website, there's a couple commanders, quarterbacks that you've worked with. Um, one notable one, Alex Smith, that I really want to get into, like more of a, I mean, that was such a catastrophic injury. And um, the fact that he got back onto the field was just inspiring. And I want to know about, you know, what his mindset was and how you kind of capitalized on that mindset, I imagine, during rehab and getting him back to functional. Um, 
And, and that trickles down to the 12 year old, the mindset that they need to have when, when they have an injury. Absolutely. And, yeah. And Alex, get Alex is a special one. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be brought in to start working with Alex really early on in his injury. And, and for those that, that don't know, he sustained a, a lower leg fracture um, out on the football field and wound up having surgery for it right away, but it wound up getting infected. There was some bacteria that got into his wound and long story short, he, he, he dealt with a lot of uh, health complications to the point where his his life was at danger for a short period of time. His leg was definitely at risk of um, having to be amputated. Um, and he had, I think he wound up having 17 surgeries over a, a short period of time to repair his leg and take pieces of both of his legs and patch up um, his injured leg. So it was, it was just an unbelievable injury. It, it was much more equivalent to a mass trauma that you would see than, than a sports injury. So he was a unique one. Um, and as I said, I started to work with Alex right early on. I met him in the hospital, saw him when he came home from the hospital and worked with him in his home to the point where I was climbing over him in his bed, trying to help him move his, his, his arms and legs well and got him up moving. And then he eventually came in to see me in the clinic. And I worked with Alex probably about five days a week for close to a year and a half. Um, to really work on getting him back. And I, I tell you, you, you were spot on and saying a lot of his ability to return to play was all mindset. And, and he's, he was about one of the, the strongest um, athletes mentally that I've been around. And, you know, the guy went through an awful lot and he honestly, in however many times I saw him, I can tell you, truthfully i don't think he ever complained about anything um he would say that was hard or i'm not sure how to do this given exercise there was never a i can't do that it was there were a lot of times i would show him something and he'd look at me and say are you sure that's okay for me to do and i would say yep we're, we're safe um and he would try it and, and maybe struggle for a second but would get it pretty quickly um and the yeah. fact that he just came in every day smile on his face saying, all right, what do you have for me today? Let, let's get working. And, you know, he used to say it all the time. We don't know where this is going to wind up, but let's just get better every day and, and see what happens. And I, I try to use that mindset with all of my athletes when they start asking, when am I going to get back on the field? What's this going to look like? I said, just get better today. You know, let's get better today. And then next time I see you, let's keep getting better. And I think Alex personified that better than anybody um and and just shows that that having that that focus and that ability to say i'm, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get myself better um he just showed that you can come back from just about anything right yeah i mean incredible i mean i there had to have been a uh, yeah, there bit was, of a tear uh, in your eye when it, you took a snap it, it's on It's funny, the football I've obviously field watched I mean, my kids play from the sidelines many, many times, part, but... and I, I've been out there playing sports many times. I think I had more of a like a uncomfortable feeling in my stomach watching Alex's first game back than I did watching any other game than I've seen. Um, and it, it wasn't that he wasn't ready or couldn't do it. It was just, it was nerves. Wow. Yeah. 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 
Um, so I think, I mean, it's, in, let's dig into the mindset a little more like, um, you know, what, what's kind of the, the common thread in athletes and people in general that, um, get through a tough time. I mean, generally when you see them, especially after an injury and they've had surgery, they're kind of at a low point, right? And they're having to accept the fact that they've got a, a bit of a road ahead of them. And, you know, what's been the common thread that's that you've seen in between people's ears and, and how have you helped them find that um, sort of thing to, so that they... Yeah, I think one of the... The most important things that, and, that and we can do as work. as therapists and, and PTs are kind of in a unique situation because we spend so much time with our, our athletes and with our patients um, is really addressing that mental side. And I am not a sports psychologist. I am not a, you know, a mental coach, um, but I see the value in that um, completely. So I, I know when I need to refer out, but when I see people, I try to have conversations with them from day one and say, especially take like an ACL, right? If I see somebody post-op week one after an ACL, I'll usually sit down with them and say, just so you know, this is going to be a grind. And there is going to be days that feel good and days that you struggle. And there's going to be ups and downs with this. The best thing you can do is is stay as even as you can. And and that's that's really challenging for athletes. And I see this at all levels. And I would say some pro athletes probably struggle with this the most that I've literally had people come in and say, this is the greatest I've ever felt today. I'm, I'm feeling amazing. And then they start doing something and say, man, I just feel felt something else. I, I don't know what I should do. Should I go have surgery? What's what's happening? I don't think I'm ever going to play again in the same day. So to be able to not ride those emotional ups and downs is, is challenging. And it's draining on the athletes. And I was having a conversation with one of my, my patients just last week, it's draining on their parents because they ride those ups and downs with them as well. And I think preparing them for those ups and downs is, is critical and letting them know that right. this is not going to be a, just a straight linear progression. You're going to have days that, right. that you're not feeling great or days that you're struggling emotionally, or you get frustrated that you're not able to do something and just, trying to step back and have a little bit more of a big picture view and say something like, I know that you can't do this today, but here's where you were a week ago, or here's where you were a few weeks ago. So the progress is still good. Let's just not get hung up on what you can't do right now. And and I think that's, that's one of the biggest struggles is just understanding the grind of a lengthy rehab process and getting people to have that mindset that they're, they're going to be optimistic and, and, stay even as much as they're able to and really celebrate the wins, you know, be, be happy when they're able to start walking, running, jumping, all those things that they weren't able to do before. Right. Right. I mean, that has to be incredibly rewarding for you too. I mean, just seeing them, you know, they're in a, like a, a full, they're fully immobilized after an ACL surgery to, you know, jumping in your, in your clinic. Absolutely. And, and like almost there, that has to be hugely rewarding for you as well. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, let's talk about ACLs. Um, you've, you've seen a few of those, I'm sure. Um, I want to start like, 
before the ACL tear. And yes, uh, it, yes, it's, it's it true uh, that it's more common. I'm in not the sure what the latest research is, but, but so traditionally why. it's been anywhere from six to eight times as likely in, in females as it is males. Um, so yes, that's absolutely true. Um, there's a lot of factors. Um, hit on a few of them. Probably the simplest ones is, first of all, is their ACLs tend to be smaller, right? Women tend to have smaller notches in their knees, so smaller, smaller ACLs, so potentially weaker. Um, there are some anatomical differences. A, a, a female pelvis is, is wider, so there's a different angle of the knee than a male has, which puts a little bit more stress on the knee. Um, there's different muscle imbalances. Um, females tend to not use their hamstrings as well as some males do, and hamstrings protect the um, protect the ACL rather. Um, so there's some some muscular imbalances. Some of it is is strength deficits. Um, it's training. There, I think in the past you used to see a lot more males that were in the weight room and, and that were training. Now I think just seeing so many female athletes, that's kind of evening out. So I think that one probably won't be as big of a factor. Um, there's some questions about hormonal factors, you know, um, based on hormones in the body in different cycles that, that females may have more laxity in their ligaments at certain times than others. So there's, there's a lot of different factors that come into play, but I would say in general, the, the angle of the knee and because of shape of the hips, the, the size of their ACL and some of the the strength and muscle firing patterns are, are probably the biggest. So when you talk about, you know, in, uh, employing a program to try to prevent ACL injuries, um, yes, is and, there a difference and I think in, in how a program you, how might a female be would similar, but we might just male? tailor things a little bit more to females. Uh, for example, if you think of some of the classic pictures of when somebody tears an ACL, it's when they land and their knees buckle in, right? If a knee goes in, whether it's landing from a jump or cutting or pivoting or quick change of direction, and the knee kind of collapses in, um, mm -hmm. females are more likely to do that than males, just again, because of the shape of their, their hips and the angle of their femurs. So for them, a lot of training has to be on understanding where that knee should be when you land and, and really retraining how they jump, how they cut with a strong emphasis on um, controlling that knee position. Um, so that comes from everything from foot alignment and making sure their their feet aren't collapsing to hip strengthening um, and make sure they, they have adequate strength, but really retraining the position of that knee in space when they're changing direction. Um, and like I said, females tend to be a little bit more quad dominant than, than males do. So really focusing a little bit more on hamstring control, things as simple as when you, when you land or you cut and change direction, being a little bit more lower down in a squat activates the hamstrings more. So it helps to protect that knee. So different things that you can try to employ to get certain muscles to fire or to retrain positions that are also important for males, but may, maybe even more so for females. Right. What are, um, you know, somebody who can't come see you, who's, you know, uh, not in geographically, um, what are some resources that young athletes can find, not just young, actually, but 
who, you know, where you can kind of help yourself develop a program that um, you can do on a daily, weekly basis or whatever it is to, um, you know, to yeah, I mean, just I think nowadays hopefully it's, reduce your chances. A lot of this information of, is of so injury. well known that I would hope that most athletic trainers, most strength coaches, most performance coaches are pretty well versed and are familiar with some of the key things that need to be addressed. Um, I first got trained and certified in, in what was one of the, the first injury prevention mm -hmm. programs um, developed by Frank Noyes, uh, which was Sports Metrics. That was early on in the ACL prevention years out at uh, Cincinnati. So I got trained um, by Dr. Noyes in that program, and that's still going strong. And, and a lot of what Sports Metrics really looks at is is jump training and having adequate strength in in the hip and making sure that athletes understand alignment of their legs when they're jumping and landing and cutting. And um, I, I would say that's a great resource. But again, now there's so many others out there that have, I think, taken a lot of those principles and applied it to a lot of different programs. So I, I think you're not going to find too many, um, too many uh, skilled and educated strength coaches out there that d aren't very familiar with this. Right, right. Um, what's the the usual mechanism, or not usual, but most common? So, so there's um, two mechanisms. Um, you know, or there are two common ones, and the first one the most common we can't do anything yourself, about, and that's the contact injuries. Um, so, contact. You know, there was there was a bad one in a football game the other night that uh, people are probably still talking about. Um, but contact right. is your your leg is planted, and somebody comes and and lands into the knee and the knee buckles and and oftentimes that's that's a multi-ligament injury and that's something that no matter how much training that you're doing there's not a whole lot that we can do to prevent that um it's when we talk about injury prevention it, it's really injury reduction because we can't prevent them they're going to happen but from an injury reduction standpoint they most happen with a sudden change of direction that's why excuse me there's so much more um so much more common in sports that have change of direction. So that's your field sports, your, your soccer, lacrosse, field hockey, basketball. Um, you know, I, I see, I've seen a couple in baseball and softball, but there's not many because they shouldn't be changing directions. You know, they, they have other challenges, uh, but it's really those change of direction sports. So it, it's a, a quick stop and a, a sudden turn. And what happens is, is the tibia, which yeah. is the main muscle of the lower leg, gets shifted anteriorly or forward on the femur. Okay, and that, that's what the ACL limits. But if, if there's an acceleration and then a sudden stop with a change of direction and that tibia keeps going, mm -hmm. um, that can be what, um, what causes that. Right. Right. And and so, what needs to be strengthened to prevent that? <clears throat> or is that more of a, a like a? Um, it's all of it. So proprioceptive, proprioceptive, and agi proprioceptive or, training or, and agility training are huge because training you need of. to um, expose the body to those stresses yeah. so that you know the first time somebody cuts and changes direction, it shouldn't be that much stress on the ACL to tear it. So that's why. Injury prevention programs not only look at the strength and the alignment, but have to get into agility training. Um, and agility in 
predicted movements, you know, that's things where you think of like agility ladders and and hurdles and things like mm-hmm. that that people might do with their coaches, but then also reactive agility work, you know, reacting to somebody's directing them which way to go or going to get a ball. Um, so all of those are, are really key things to just expose the body to those stresses. Um, but strength is also extremely important. And, and quad strength is important. Hamstring strength is extremely important. Hip strength is important. Um, mentioned even, even foot strength and foot control, because if the, the arch of the foot collapses, that will cause the knee to, to fall in. So there's strengthening things that have to happen from the leg up the chain. Um, and then also, if you think top down, core strength and stability is so important too, because that that drives where the pelvis is and where the hips are. So having that be stable takes stress off of the, the rest of the leg as well. Yeah. Um, and then um, not to like get too deep in the weeds here, but there are two different type of muscle contractions, right? So there's kind of the one that allows you to explode and then there's one that allows you to decelerate. So absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of different ways that you want to train your muscles and within a good strength program, you should be hitting those. You should hit your, your isometrics, which are kind of your long called prolonged holds where you're activating a lot of muscles to help stabilize around a joint. Um, your concentrics are, are your pushes and, and your explosive movements. Think about being able to drive off of your leg to accelerate. Um, and then eccentric, which is what slows the body down and controls it, which um, are where a lot of injuries occur. If you don't have the ability for muscles to really control slowing a joint down, um, that's that's an issue as well. So a good strength program has to address all, all of those different types of muscle contractions. So your, your isometric holds, your stability, your, your concentric, your eccentric, your, your power and explosive, um, all that should come into play. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I saw, I kind of jumped around a little bit, but um, I saw that you did a podcast. I think it was a podcast on neuromuscular or neuromuscular, yeah, neuromuscular control. Um, and that gets developed while you're doing these programs. Sure. Um, yeah. There's, talk a little bit there's about the strength component, that, but that junction what makes of our nerve and muscle and the nerves and, and how that develops over time. signals to the nerves is our brain. So a lot of, a lot of things that we'll do with our athletes They'll say this is this is challenging, but it's more challenging mentally than physically. You know, so we we need to make sure that a good program is also training the brain to understand how to respond to different things and and how to get their body to do certain things. And in order to do that, we throw a lot of different variables at our at our athletes. So things like you know you might you might be doing single leg balance exercises where you're working on some proprioception and some strength, but then maybe you're you're having them have to be distracted and, and catch a ball or kick a ball while they're doing that, or you're doing things with your eyes closed or, you know, throwing some other type of stimulus at them so that their, their brain has to understand how to adapt to anything that's coming into them, uh, coming into their system. So the, the more we're able to change variables and, and throw different things at somebody uh, so that they have to use not only that, 
part of their body that they're training, but maybe their their entire body. So instead of just doing, you know, a single pull exercise with an arm on a on a cable, maybe they're doing it standing on one leg or they're doing it in a stride stance or they're adding rotation or or just different variables that we're throwing at them to get their entire bodies to work. Um, and then adding some of those those challenges to their brains as well. So they have to figure out how to do certain things. Um, okay. So talk about, um, recovery. So in today's day and age, we talked about it, you know, kids are going to showcases, they're going to multi game, multi-match events, um, in a short period of time. Um, and talk about, you know, obviously preparation, you know, we've touched on the off season and then taking, you know, maintaining that during the season, but, you know, what, what can kids do, or athletes do um, in between events? You know, you've got three or four hours in between um, matches and then, you know, you may have two more the next day. Yeah. So talk about. I'll steal a quote that I, I heard. Measures they can said by many people, but I heard from Eric Cressy, who's a well-known uh, strength out. coach in, in the baseball world. Um, and he said, if you want to. You want to outperform your opponents, start by out eating them and out sleeping them. And, and as simple as that sounds, that's so important. And, and we see that with our, especially with our high school kids that are going to school mm -hmm. and training and then figuring out when to do their homework and traveling for these games and tournaments that they definitely don't sleep very well. Um, you know, you can throw technology and phones into the mix of a, a potential reason. Um, and we know that. You know, the research shows that for, for a, an adolescent, they should be getting at least eight to nine hours of sleep a night. Yeah. Athletes should be even more than that. So if you're thinking nine to 10 hours and you're in a season, nobody's getting that. Um, I, or I'd say that's, that's very rare. So I think just working towards that and getting quality sleep as much as possible. I, I've seen it many times that people go to these these travel tournaments or these showcases and they go away and then they have games and they're up hanging out with their teammates and their friends and they're eating pizza or they're eating junk and, and then expecting their bodies to perform well the next day. You're really not setting yourself up well. So I, I think it, it really starts with, with proper rest and proper nutrition is as simple as those might sound. Yeah, I mean, it's super easy to, you know, stop by, I mean, Wendy's or whatever when you're on the road and, and pick up something quick and easy and that you can eat in the car. But um, yeah, I mean, so I know you're not a nutritionist, but you've been around it for so long. I mean, what are some of the things that are really bad? Yeah, some I mean, of the things that, you know, are really good. There's as and, far and as, like I said, I'm not a nutritionist, that are convenient when you're I, on I the think road understanding and that sort of thing basics of nutrition and you know what what each type of food does for you obviously for if you're an endurance athlete you need a lot of carbohydrates right and then that's that's where you get your energy from you need some some healthy fats so that's the, those also provide energy um you need good protein proteins huge for recovery of muscles um so getting those in in proper forms and not in 
you know, not in the fast form is, is ideal. Um, I don't think they need to necessarily be taking supplements, but if they're not eating well, things like, like protein shakes are, are definitely helpful if they're not getting good nutrition anyway, you know, they don't have the access to go to a, a grocery store and get something healthy after they play something like a, a protein shake is definitely helpful. Um, but I think having, having adequate, um, energy sources in your body and then adequate ways to, um, replenish and, and strengthen your body after a competition is, is really key. Obviously, Right. Um, so obviously over the last, I don't know, recent memory, um, there's, there's all this, uh, stuff on social media about ice baths and sauna and, and all that. I mean, are you bought into that or is it, you know, is it obviously sleep and nutrition is, are, are the, the two top things, but you know, what yeah, other, I think there's a lot of things out there can, and, um, athletes use to, to help them. There's some things that know, have been proven, some that haven't necessarily been proven, but make sense. So they're yeah. worth trying. Um, I mean, soft tissue work is key. Um, and I have several people that travel around and when they're, they're at their games or at their tournaments, they either can do some self massage. They have their, their, their guns or things like that, that they can use or have even, reached out to i've got kind of a network of therapists throughout the country have reached out to therapists and gone and seen somebody or gone for a massage um something that they can do just to get uh you know get their muscles uh, to be flushed out and and get some recovery that way which i think is definitely helpful um i i do think ice baths have some good uh good research to them and there is some good benefit to that especially when you need to recover quickly um, you know, the, the key is, is improving circulation. And when, if you get into a, an ice bath as miserable as it is, um, it's kind of a shock to the system. And then you, it actually improves your circulation throughout your body. So it does help give you some, a quick recovery. Um, you know, an example, if you have, let's say you're out at a, a three or a four day tournament, you know, you have games back to back to back days, um, being able to get into an ice bath is, is a, a nice option as far as recovery goes. Um, saunas are good too, but I think the research on ice baths is actually a little bit better. And, and that's, that's ice baths. That's total body or, or at least <laughs> legs down. If you're talking soccer, that's not putting ice on something, right? That's different okay. than putting an ice pack on cool. a joint. Um, we're talking about more for the, the circulatory effects and the, the flushing of the system more so than trying to decrease inflammation in a given part of the body. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Um, I wrote down NSAIDs. I don't know if you're, I'm, you're not a medical doctor either. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, see if you would like to talk about like the usage of, of ibuprofen and that sort of thing sure. and, and um, the dangers, yeah, especially like I said, for I don't kids. Prescribe it, um, obviously, but I've been an exposed to it an awful lot. Soft um, tissue work, you know, those sorts of things. For me, if, if somebody needs, NSAIDs or some type of anti-inflammatory to get through their games without pain, there's a bigger problem. 
Um, so I'm definitely not a, a believer in in taking them preventively or even after a sport um, to help your body feel better. They really shouldn't need that at that age. Um, I, I have so many kids that come into my office and say, especially take baseball or, or softball, especially pitchers. They say, oh yeah, I take Advil before every time I go out to pitch. And I'm like, at, at your age, there's no way you should be doing that. And you shouldn't need to be doing that. Um, and for parents, if you're giving kids medication to get them to be able to get through their, their games or their event, there's a bigger issue going on. We need to figure out why they're having these mm -hmm. problems in the first place. And, you know, they, they're relatively safe in a short term uh, period. And, and we definitely use them a good amount, but to do it for an extended period of time, there's definitely problems that it can create with, with the liver, with stomach issues. So it's definitely not a, not a good long-term solution. Um, now, if you have somebody and they've got, they've got some aches and pains and they're getting ready to play in a championship game and they need to, you know, feel their best. And that's a, a one-time thing. And you want to take some Advil or a leave, say, go for it. I'm, I have no problem with that, but that can't be your every weekend. Here's what I need to do to be able to play. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also wanted to talk about some of the things that you've specialized or done, you know, certifications in. And um, uh, the first one is uh, dry needling. Um, I've actually experienced that a little bit and it, sure. it's really yeah, cool. Dry needling so, um, is extremely valuable. Talk about uh, what and it is I've, and I've found that uh, when to use it and over what the, the effects last of it are. Probably seven or eight years since I got uh, trained and certified in it. I'm using it more. Um, and, and that's, that's just because I'm seeing the effects of it. So basically what it is, is, is taking very small acupuncture needles, um, and inserting them into muscles, especially muscles that have tightness and have trigger points. Um, and there's, there's different theories and different ways that it can be done, but I'll usually do kind of a, a pistoning motion, which is putting the needle into the muscle and, and then moving the needle and manipulating it through the muscle. And you get uh, what we call a twitch reflex. So the muscle will often twitch and, and kind of contract around the needle and then let go. So for things that are caused by muscle tightness or muscle spasms or trigger points, needling works extremely well. Um, I, I do a lot of soft tissue work with my hands too. And, and I'm starting to see that some things that might take 20 minutes or you know a couple of sessions to really have to get in and dig and work through which are not comfortable to do sometimes um, if i can get a couple needles in it and get a muscle to release in just a few minutes that's that's much much more attractive to people um so it works really well the downside is you're typically pretty sore after it and there's some soreness that day and sometimes even the next day but by the following day, it should feel a lot yeah. better. Um, so if I have an athlete that comes in and they, they ask about needling and or want to get needled, I'll always ask, what do you have going on today? And if there's a game today, we're not going to needle. Um, if there's something tomorrow, I'll say, yes. we'll leave it up to you. It's, there's no downside to it, but you're going to be a little bit sore from it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's like an accumulation of definitely you know, constant activity. Yes. And it that can be, it can be from an injury, you know, something gets strained and then there's, 
things can tighten up around and, it. And so it can be something as simple that, as I correct. have a couple of people uh, this week that I've needled that, yeah. that have um, headaches from tightness in their uh, muscles in the upper neck. Um, so we can needle that, um, upper trap needling. So a lot of different things that are used to treat some of those muscle <laughs> tightnesses. Um, and I, I've had a lot of people, you know, you talk about soccer. Um, I did this a lot when I was working with the spirit. There were a handful of players that at least once a week, they'd want to get needled and get their calves or quads or hamstrings or things needled just because they tend to tighten up and, and those would help them. Uh, and I should have mentioned that when you talk about recovery too, if somebody's playing and they've had a couple of games and their, their calves are tight and sore or something else is really tightened up and they know they've got another game in a few right. days that they need to really do everything they can to loosen up for needling is a great option for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, right. there's, there's some, um, there's I some mean, people that are apprehensive about it. And then there's others that will come in and say, I love needling, getting needles. You know, and like I always think actual, that's, that's a little concerning, but needles, so. I think you love the effects um, of getting needled, not, not uh, actual needling. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Those are the people that have a lot of tattoos, I'm yeah. assuming. They, yeah, so I use that actual an movie. awful lot. Um, <laughs> got certified in that. Um, um, and then another one was... the same uh, time, uh, maybe a little bit uh, earlier Tell than I got certified is. in needling. So blood flow restriction is essentially exercising with a, a cuff on either the upper arm or the upper leg that limits circulation to that, that extremity, which... Sounds like a terrible idea, um, but basically what you're trying to do is limit the the blood that gets, so for example, if I'm doing it on my leg and I have this this essentially blood pressure cuff on my, my upper thigh, um, I'm allowing blood to get into my leg while I'm exercising, but not allowing as much blood to return and get out of the leg. So everything that would normally happen as you're exercising, developing lactic acid, developing muscle soreness, fatiguing muscles, um, gets more and more increased with um, exercising under blood flow uh, restricted conditions. So that lactic acid that would normally build up as you're doing squats is even more so. So basically what happens, then I take that blood pressure cuff off all that lactic acid, all those chemicals that are in my leg from fatigue go to my brain and it triggers my brain to think that I just did something very stressful. So I need to start repairing quickly. So let's start building muscle. Um, so it, it basically jumpstarts the body's ability to build muscle and start uh, synthesizing protein. So the equivalent that we use is, is if you're trying to build muscle, you need to put enough stress into that muscle to allow it to, to uh, respond and, and build, right? So that might be 70 to 80% of a one rep max, which is pretty high intensity. Now, if you just had an ACL two weeks ago, you can't put that much load into your tissue. But if I can have you exercise with, with BFR on, we might do very, very light load but you get the same benefit chemically and throughout the body as you would as if you were doing heavy load. And that's most of the research is showing very light load exercise under blood flow restricted conditions gets the same benefit as far as muscle growth and, and preventing atrophy as heavy load exercise does. So I, I would say for me, it's, it's been a game changer 
especially for anybody after surgery, it's it's a given that we're doing BFR work um, as early as probably a week out of surgery. Gotcha. Um, and a lot of their basic even table exercises that we might do, uh, we're doing under under BFR conditions because they get a lot more out of it. And then you, I don't see nearly as much atrophy as I used to see if we're able to get those muscles working and, and build some muscle as opposed to, you know, somebody that's not able to use that leg for six weeks or eight weeks to do strength work. Um, we don't want to be playing catch up and, and have lost all their muscle mass. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. a huge problem, right? In your world, yeah. is, and I'll, is just I'll add, the, the I'll add one other thing too. This is kind of a newer use of BFR, you know, after, but going back uh, to one of your earlier questions, surgery, it's used for recovery a lot. That's as really well. cool. Um, um, so if I have, your brain let's say my legs are just exhausted and I, I played a couple of games, right? I can, I can put my BFR on for, let's say, five minute cycles, 15 minutes, or whatever. Hmm restrict all that blood flow going into my leg. And then when you take it off, you get this extreme flush of basically improving circulation, which is what you're trying to do to recover. So you'll see some some other things that people do like like Normatex or compression boots. BFR is a, a similar idea. It's just, it's a little bit more measured and more calculated as far as how much um, blood that we're restricting. So it's becoming more and more common with recovery as well. Yes, it should be. Gotcha. Um, I, I say it um, should be um, because yeah, there's I'm there's a, that a that wide range of BFR devices out there, and there's some that professional that are, someone who's certified and using you know, FDA approved and very scientifically developed. Okay, um, and they're they're pricey, um, and you have to get certified and have a professional get trained in how to do that and show you how to use them. But you can also go online and buy yourself a BFR cuff for you know. 20 bucks or where you see weightlifters at the gym and say they're they're using blood flow restriction and just put a tight band around their body um so there are cheap ways to do it and there are dangerous ways to do it um but for me if i'm going to mess with circulation and blood flow i think i want to go with the the more validated approach Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's uh, a worthy investment for sure in that area. Um, so uh, the other one was, uh, I mean, you mentioned yep. uh, cupping earlier. Um, you see all the time on TV, you see athletes with these giant circles on them. Um, yeah, I think the first yeah it was funny. I, I forget which Michael Olympics Phelps it was, but I, it was Michael ago. Phelps, and he came out and had all these circles um, so on him. About what that is, the number of phone calls of that, that came um, into physical therapy offices and, and after when that to use it. Um, was was pretty crazy. It was hey, there's this new thing called cupping, and we had to tell people this is not new. This has been around. Well, I mean, the, in Eastern medicine, yeah. they've been doing this for probably a thousand years, um, so it's not really a, a new thing. Um, but the the way that it's used now in the sports world is is been developed over the last probably 10 or 15 years um and it is putting cups on tissues um it, it's basically suctioning um on tissues so so you're essentially trying to improve circulation again improve some some mobility of the fascia mm-hmm. which is what's 
between the skin and the muscle layer, which can get bound down, even some of the superficial muscles. So if we're able to to get some distraction to that or essentially lift those up off of the body, it helps improve the, the circulation and, and blood flow underneath that. Uh, we also will put it on, sometimes people will put them on just passively and have someone just on a table with cups on them. More often than not, we'll put them on and have people do some movement so that they're really trying to just get their tissues moving. So things that might get bound down a little more on a superficial level than we would do with needling. Um, needling is a little bit deeper uh, um, in most cases, but if it's it's more surface level or fascial restrictions, cupping works really well with that. Um, it's basically, it's connective tissue that's between your skin and your muscle. So it does encase the muscle, but it's also this, right. this kind of spider so, yeah, I mean, web um, matrix that's that all throughout our muscle. body. Is that right? Um, that's extremely important to keep mobility in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, last thing, core first. Um, um I know it's that on your website as well. well that might make um, you look you better, but it's probably um, not going to make you function all that much better. Core work. Um, um, yeah. So, so, you know, I, I should just go do a thousand sit-ups a day, right? Uh, that's right. That's, that, that, that's all he did, apparently. <laughs> that's the legend. Um, yeah. Core first, uh, it's a term I'll that was, that was developed um, um, uh, and kind of trademarked a lot, by a mentor so. of mine, Vicki Johnson, who's with the yeah, Institute yeah. of Physical Art that I yeah. mentioned. Um, right. It's a name of a course that yeah, she developed, right. and it, it's ahead. really an approach, uh, really a treatment approach. And that is is essentially you need to have stability before mobility, right? So before the body moves, if you're thinking about soccer, before I even think about lifting a leg to kick, my core stabilizers should engage, right? And, and should stabilize so that I have a stable foundation so that I can then lift a leg and, and swing a leg to kick. Or, you know, if I'm throwing a ball before I even lift my arm to throw my trunk, my core stabilizers should kick in to protect my body. Um, and all that should happen automatically, right? This is not on a field, you're not thinking about, well, let me tighten this muscle and tighten this muscle. That's, there's no way that's going to be efficient. But if I'm in a, a good position and I've trained and I have a core that works well, anytime I move, my core should be engaging. So when I'm training athletes or working with, with patients, that, that's why I was mentioning earlier that a lot of exercises will have a lot of different components to it. So if I'm, if I'm doing, you know, a, a a single leg balance exercise, for example, the core should be able to stabilize with that. If I'm doing something where somebody is is standing and, and pulling on a band, maybe they're in a, a split stance or they're in a single leg stance or different things so that their trunk needs to be able to stabilize because I need to have that that stable foundation in order to do any type of a movement. Um, another common like an analogy or phrase that we use with that when we're explaining this to patients is, is you're trying to transfer energy right throughout the system when you're trying to kick a ball throw a ball do whatever you, you want to do in sports mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to generate force and transfer that to the ball to whatever you're trying to do in order to have that energy transfer throughout your body there needs to be stability or else you're going to lose some of that energy and and the analogy we say a lot of times is you can't shoot a cannon from a canoe right you have to have 
stability in order to generate power. So that stability really comes from that core first or that um, we call it automatic core engagement, that core being stable so that I can generate the power with my, my bigger muscles. Right. Um, so what are some of the things that, um, yeah, well, know, I would say, uh, it, people as can fun do as they home, are, your, your sit-ups um, and your crunches are probably you know, not going to make that list of the top two or three. Um, they're, to, they're pretty you know, superficial muscle, um, but things where you have to hold your body in a better position. So even, even things as basic as, as plank positions and, and prone planks on two, two arms or side planks or single leg stance activities where the, the trunk and the pelvis is stable. Um, and a lot of times people will, will do things like bridging, um, you know, lying on their back and picking their hips up, doing maybe a single leg bridge instead, or a bridge on something unstable or, or things like that, where they really just have to work on holding their bodies in a stable position. Um, is that, that's, a little bit of an oversimplification, but those are some things that I would I would have people start with is just see how well can you have basically everything from from your hips to your chest be stable in a given position before we worry about movement and doing things fast or, or trying to generate power with that area. Right. Um, yeah. Cool. So this has been I fun. Mean, I appreciate you, really uh, you inviting me, and, um, and I know you, you said else most of your like audience are, are those young or, athletes looking to um, looking to play at another level. And yeah, and for me, that, from that like the way that I look at things, it's really teaching them how to use their bodies well. Um, and I think that's that's such a key component. And and I enjoy being able to introduce some of this stuff to my athletes and show them some ways that they can use their bodies more efficiently to hopefully even get better at whatever their, their given activity is. So I, I think that's, that's extremely important. Um, and, and obviously it's not the end all be all. There's a lot of other things that, that come into play and we touched a little bit on, on the nutrition and the mental side and skills coaching and, and all that stuff is super important, but obviously looking at it from a perspective of how they use their bodies, I, I think it's, it's fun to show them how much more efficient they can be. even even the highest level athletes, how much more efficiency they can have. Right. Yeah. Well said. Um, yeah. I, again, I really appreciate it. Oh yeah. It's been Got great. See some good. Um, I can't, I, I hope that we can do this again real soon because uh, there's just so much to talk about. And, and uh, I'm sure that you have, we could do a whole podcast on stories that you have too, probably. So <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Thank you for listening to the tales from the trail podcast by match play. I hope you found it informative and enjoyable. Thank you for sharing and subscribing to the podcast and helping it grow. Please rate and review the podcast where you listen. Keep sending questions and comments. I enjoy the feedback and always get your questions answered by my guests.
Don't forget to check out Match Play on social media as well. See you on the trail.